before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast, coming to you from Australia this time. It's early in the morning here. It's Monday afternoon uh, in New York, and I wanted to talk to someone about uh, what's happening in the banking sector this week, obviously, with uh, the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Now, there's an awful lot of noise out there. There's an awful lot of people with opinions. I've been reading through them because I'm going to write about this this weekend. How can I not? So I didn't want to add to that noise. So I wanted to have a chat with my great friend, Peter Atwater, who has been someone that I followed for many, many years now. And his work on mood in markets has been so important to me personally in helping understand the kind of shifting sentiments that tend to lead events like we saw over this past weekend. So rather than add another opinion on whether it's a bailout, whether it isn't, whether the Fed and the regulators did a good job, whether they didn't, I'll get into that next weekend. I wanted to have a slightly different conversation and hopefully add something to the discussion that won't necessarily be being discussed, certainly not in the kind of depth and with the kind of background Peter has. So this is going to be my attempt to at least contribute to the debate around the failure of these two banks and see what happens from here. So without further ado, let me welcome Peter to the podcast. Peter, uh, welcome back to the podcast, and thanks for doing this on short notice. What a what a crazy few days! It's been a wild, wild weekend, hasn't it? Just you know, um, you and I were talking off mic just now before we started recording, and, and um, the reason I was so keen to chat with you was because I, you know I've read so many really well thought out, really interesting pieces about this. Lots of opinion, lots of confusion, lots of dogma, lots of prognostications about what absolutely will happen. And it occurred to me that the only way I could really add to this would be to have a slightly different conversation. And you posted a piece yesterday, as you always tend to do at these points, that really, really was, even by your own standards, an extraordinarily timely piece when you talked about the shift in mood. And so I thought it'd be a great chance for you and I to talk about that component of this crisis because I think it is important. I think it's going to become more important and I think not enough people are paying attention to it. So if you wouldn't mind, rather than jump in with the mood today in New York. Can you just kind of go back and, and talk about how the mood has shifted in the lead up to this and what you've noticed and what you've chronicled along that kind of journey? Yeah, and, I, and I'm going to rewind the tape to early 2021, which I know must seem like, you know, millennial. <laughs> Four lifetimes ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, BC, you know, but, but, but it's really important because what we saw a little over two years ago were two things that don't normally happen together. One was a bubble in abstraction, you know, SPACs, NFTs, shitcoins, crypto, you know, you name it. If it was on the wild frontier, there was insatiable demand for it. And in that regard, you could say this was, you know, dot-com 2.0 just on steroids. But the other thing that happened concurrently, which I didn't think 
got enough attention was the the bond bubble peak. And, you know, you've, you've got all these portfolios that are saying, you know, bonds do well when stocks do poorly, you know, in the reverse. It's like, no, no, no. We've just had a moment in time where everything did really, really well. And so if I use that as the starting point, what we've actually seen is a pretty logical bubble break. The, the wildest things left the party first, which is always the case. Bubbles unwind on a LIFO basis. And so they've, they've gone through their malaise, through you know, Terra, through FTX, through Silvergate. But now we've had this interesting um, alignment where the bubble in abstraction has now met the bubble burst in bonds. Because what unnerved folks was sort of two-dimensional. You have this bank that is highly associated with the crypto space, highly associated with tech and venture. But the tipping point appears to have been the losses that they've taken in their bond portfolio. And so that convergence creates a sort of a guilty on all charges kind of a conviction. And that's, I think, what precipitated this and and clearly then took signature down because in many ways you, they're they're the east coast brother of the west coast bank and so to me there was there's just an immense amount of logic to this but it's funny you know these two bank failures are two of the largest in US history these are two banks that really unless you were in those spaces crypto venture silicon valley p those kind of things or, or on the west coast these names are not going to mean much to many people. Silicon Valley Bank sounds so localized. It's it's hard for people to believe what an enormous bank it was. And Signature Bank, again, you know, very few people will have heard of it because of the nature of its business. But these are two of the largest bank failures in US history. What does that do to people's mindset as they kind of find out what's actually happened here? So it creates a sense of vulnerability that Un, being unnerved by the fact that I didn't even know these things existed. So what else might be out there that I don't know anything about? And that's, that's I think, where you started to see the contagion fears develop that, okay, who else has this exposure either on the bond side or on the crypto side? And that then precipitated, I think, the need for the, for the government to step in over the weekend. Um, but we don't like the, the other piece of it that I think doesn't get enough attention in all of this is our starting point in terms of confidence wasn't good. Right. That you know, people were already feeling vulnerable before this hit. And, you know, you, I, I could say that this is sort of a climax of that vulnerability. I, I'm not convinced yet that that's safe to say that we need to start to see do we see a restoration in, in confidence in both stocks and bonds but this is this has clearly been an unnerving thing because as you said so few people were aware of the staggering size of it and and even if you looked at it for historically that the the growth is 
truly hockey stick shaped in Silicon Valley. It it took in the cash that everybody was raising, you know, during that during that mania in, in late 2020. So let's talk about the piece you wrote yesterday, because I say when I read that, it was so good and to me highlighted really, really important points. And I say, I, I, I as soon as I read that, I kind of cut and pasted it and, and tweeted that extract out that you put on the front page of that. And the response to it was phenomenal, as I felt it would be and should be, and more people should be thinking about it. So, so talk a little bit about your piece yesterday, what the points you were trying to make were, and let's go through them. Because I think it's, uh, for anyone that didn't see the tweet, it's, it's an important discussion to have. Yeah, so there are a couple of dimensions to it. The first deals with power. And power shifts between leaders and the crowd with confidence. When confidence is high, power rests with a leader. It's, it's in fact given to the leader from the crowd. When confidence is low, the crowd reassumes that, that power. It's a, it's a response to the powerlessness that we feel that we, we need to take power back. And, and so what I think we have seen a lot of of late is this crowd behavior where the crowd is driving outcomes more than leaders. Leaders are playing catch up. And that was the second point that I was trying to raise, which was the, the question of time and pace. And I, I refer to it as Twitter time. The crowd today moves on Twitter time. And that is fast. It's widespread. It's global. And if you're a regulator, if you're a, a, a bureaucratic leader, you can't compete with that. You're, you are always going to be behind that. And, and I'm reminded by some history because this is, this is I think, a relevant point. And, and it's going to seem archaic, but the Panic of 1857 stands out in financial history because of its speed. Earlier panics took weeks, if not months, to play out. And you, you sort of shake your head and go, why? Well, the prior panics required mail. You know, messages had to be delivered by somebody to someone. And in the panic of 1857, we had the telegraph. And you can fast forward this in a pretty chronological way to the telephone with the panics in the 1890s, the radio and the, you know, the crash of the 1920s. You saw the impact of television getting way ahead of institutions during the Vietnam War and Watergate. And we saw this with the dot-com bubble burst with the internet. And now I think we're seeing it with the social media bubble in what's happening today. And the reality is we are moving faster, further than ever before. And there's another dimension, online banking. So now we have given access to immediate information to the crowd, and they are now positioned to do whatever they want with that immediately as well. So you know, people who are looking for lines in front of these banks, you're, you're, you're late. You know, right. if, if I'm scared and I've got online banking, I'm moving money from my bedroom, from my office, from the cab. You know, and and I don't think our systems are set up for that. I don't think anyone contemplated this kind of a a modern bank run. 
Well, it's such a great point. And I think, you know, when you had to go down to the bank and fill out a form to take your money out and move it, look, everybody at the heart, most people are just lazy and they think, oh, you know, there's a risk, but can I be bothered to get in the car and go down to town and fill out my thing and take my money out? And, and people would, and that's where the queues were, but most people would like, oh, well, I'll just give it a few more days. But to your point, you know, we saw $42 billion leave Silicon Valley Bank in a time frame measured in hours while the yep. regulators spent days trying to come up with a solution. And, you know, that was with their backs up against the wall. But it feels as though that crowd behavior, it's going to be very tough to wrestle the power back from that crowd. Because as you say, with the best world in the world, there is no way that regulators can keep up with this. It's not like there's a way they can come back and readjust the playing field and get back on level terms. It just feels like that crowd behavior now has been facilitated and kind of unleashed upon the world. Is there anything that can be done? And if not, what does that mean because the crowd as we know is violently shifting in both directions all the time yeah so if if i'm a policymaker and i'm and i'm sympathetic to their plight at this point because i i think this is a, a big awakening um you've got to be working every lever you possibly can to ensure that the crowd has a greater sense of certainty and control in what's going on and that sounds abstract, and but you know that I, I I joke sometimes that the difference between an airplane and a bank is that when there's turbulence, you can exit a bank. Right. But it's the same crowd response when there's turbulence, and and when it involves our money and we feel powerless, we're gonna find that exit wherever we possibly can. And we have to now, I think if I'm in the regulatory environment, we have to find ways to cushion those moves, that to expect that if the crowd moves, we're going to have to have ways to either pour liquidity into the system or to limit those movements. And, and here's where I think the environment on an international basis has the potential to change dramatically. We can talk about this in the construct of the US financial system and a central bank that has you know, done a lot, knows what to do in terms of stemming a liquidity tide. In a less stable environment, and if I'm running a country, I, I'm not sure I have any choice but to impose capital controls in a, in a knee-jerk response. And again, I don't think we're thinking about those sorts of issues. If I'm running a global corporation and I'm used to this hub-and-spoke liquidity and capital management process, I'm potentially going to be at risk if governments conclude that to save their financial system, they've got to bring down the gates. Well, of course, you know, the, the problem here at heart is that every bank is vulnerable, right? They live in a state of vulnerability because a bank run is something that, because the nature of fractional reserve banking cannot be stopped. It's a, it's a problem that faces every bank, and it's a problem that faces every regulator, and it's a problem that faces every president. 
And so, you know, this is why, to me, this idea of confidence as it ebbs and flows is just so important because the system is one episode of supremely low confidence away from meltdown all the time. And, of course, as you talk about the speed with which things can happen now because of the advancements in technology, it just makes that situation more and more fragile every day. So if you're in the position of making policy, how do you deal with that? Because you have to start thinking very, very differently. And and these are very arcane and archaic institutions. How do they do it? Do they have the capacity to do that even? Yeah, I, I think they do. I don't. The, the question is, will they do it fast enough? Right. I, you know, the, the the analogy I would say today is the the financial system is like Boeing after the first Max jet crash. The consequences of a second one are you know would be perilous. And and you know remember too, we we've now this is what the third potential crisis since the new millennium. And I don't want to say we are primed for them, but that repetition, I think, matters. And so people have a playbook for what to do in the event of a financial crisis. So so does it help? Because it was very interesting, the timing of everything yesterday was very interesting. You know, the signature bank closure really got lost in the headlines because they came out and essentially backstopped Silicon Valley and said, oh, oh you know, look, uh, by the way, we've, we've just uh, closed down signature bank. But never mind that, everything's safe. And so it's very clear that that was all designed to avoid the look of contagion that there were more banks falling. And, and I actually think they probably got away with that pretty well yesterday. You know, Signature Bank wasn't really in the headlines. The headlines that I did read about Signature Bank, many of them were painting it as some kind of bad actor, if not overtly, but there were an awful lot of articles that called it a crypto bank and, you know, how regulators were cracking down on crypto. Is that potentially one solution to go after banks that have ties to something that can easily be sold as the reason for this closure is not a bank run and not insolvency. It's because we're cracking down on X and so we need to get things in order. You know, I I think that there's the potential for a lot of conspiracy theory. Yeah. In terms of, you know, we're going after this, we're going after that. I don't, you know, I don't think that that's at the core of the regulatory actions we've seen so far on the banking side. They're trying to stem a bigger problem. I think for the regulators, they thought they had till the weekend to get Silicon Valley taken care of. That proved to be woefully over-optimistic. And as a result, you're going to see regulators moving more aggressively, preemptively. Um, You know, the the mantra of most banking regulators, and I don't think people appreciate appreciate this, is shoot the wounded. Their goal is to get the wounded players off the field before contagion is a question. So seeing what we saw on Sunday says to me, we we now have regulators who are going to be pre, you know, very proactive in, in stemming problems by merging them out of existence, closing them down, but to prevent this cascading run. So I, I do think they were they were really wise on Sunday to at least try and get ahead of things in that process. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And it pains me to give them high marks for this, but I have to do just that. But look, when we go back to the Depression, we saw some nine-plus thousand banks close. When we go back to 2008, you know, I forget what the website was called now, but there's a website that every day would keep you up to date with the banks that were being closed. And when we look at today and you talk about shooting the wounded, given the nature of the problems faced by Silicon Valley Bank, which was essentially, in my mind at least, an interest rate shock rather than necessarily poor management. There are nuances to it all, obviously, but I think the speed with which rates rose is probably the main thing that crippled them. That's obviously a problem facing every bank. And so if you get to this shoot the wounded point in the cycle, do you risk amping up the contagion? Because you're in a kind of no-win situation here. If you try and take the wounded off the field, you create this sense, oh boy, every day another bank is being closed. And look, right now, as people have pointed out, and that was a natural reaction, and I've been talking about this with people for several weeks now, you can sweep your funds into a money market account and get 5% now. Do you need to have money apart from to pay your bills and stuff on deposit at the bank? And, you know, there are so many cross currents here that make the job the regulators have almost impossible to thread the needle. So how are they thinking about mood and confidence? How are you thinking about things that, we need to be wary of as this kind of unvirtuous cycle continues to play out? Yeah, so a, a couple of things. Um, I, I think the danger here is that people look at these institutions as one-dimensional. So you talk about the unrealized losses in the bond portfolio. What's not getting discussed is that the prudent risk management that many banks took in anticipation of that. So they they've got gains and hedges. They've got they've got other things that are offsetting this. And so the the challenge from a regulatory perspective is folks are looking at one part without looking at things holistically. And and th- that's a common behavior on our part when confidence is low. Yeah. You know, very simplistic black or white thinking. I'm going to look at that one factor and that that'll be enough. But I think that the the regulators, again, I don't think they got enough credit last night either for the the policy that they put in place to take securities at par. And this is where I think the the government can step in and and mitigate the the problem of of, you know, if I have to, liquidate assets at a loss, I'm creating this perilous cycle. And so I think that that too should help. But we're we're now at a point where the, the issue at hand is not the consumer's behavior. The issue is the corporation's behavior. Yeah. The the large you know what have historically been non-insured deposits, because that's that's where the money is moving fastest in in all of this. You know th- there are very few individuals who are subject to the the cap of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and so I think we need to be really frank about the fact that what's going on is corporations are reawakening to issues of basic cash management. And it's remarkable to me when you step back and say, 
you know, you've got all this cash in banks that have been under-rewarding large corporations. Um, you know, shame on them for for not <laughs> looking at the the alternatives that were available to them. But I think to your point, again, one of the things that's so unusual about where we are is there is no friction to deposits. It used to be the case that T-bill rates were below deposit rates. Yeah. And now we've got the inverse where you're you're incentivized to leave. You you can get you take less risk and you get more return. And and so that's a that's a an imbalance that is going to have to be rectified. But look, let's face it, there's one of two ways that can be rectified. And only one of two ways, right? Either T-bill rates have to come down below deposits or deposit rates have to go up above T-bill rates. And you know, this brings us to really the crux of the issue here because if T-bill rates are going to go down in the market, if you look at the two-year today in New York, you'll see a dramatic repricing. I mean, wild. And we can talk about yeah. the activity in the bond market today in a second. But obviously, if you're a regulator and you're trying to stave off a potential run of the banking system, you realise that given the nature of their books, they can't just raise deposit rates up to the level they need to. There's no chance they can do that without exacerbating the run. And for 20-odd years, the policymakers and central bankers have been in a position where a response of, well, let's cut rates, would be the salve that would solve these problems. But of course, now, for the first time in all that time, and this is the key part that I think a lot of people either haven't understood or are just starting to understand, the problem that inflation brings on the other side of that particular dynamic is a very, very real one. And we're, you know, we're a year away from an election, a year and change away from an election in the US. And you don't want rampant inflation when you're trying to get, you know, win a second term. So, you know, with all that kind of rat it's, a, it's, a, it's not really much of a question, it's just a big bundle of stuff I'm throwing at you. From a policy mindset point of view, what the hell is the solution to this? Because I keep trying to figure it out. And it feels like, the market is going to present a solution before policymakers are able to. And again, that is going to create another problem. Yeah, and, and the market will. Because, I mean, if you look at T-bill rates, T-bill rates have been ahead of the Fed at every one of these hikes. You, you can almost watch to see the Fed yeah. catching up with where the market is. So, so to your point, there's no question in my mind the market is going to solve this problem well before policymakers have a chance. And you know, today's behavior has been helpful to the banks, without question. But the, the broader issue is, even if banks now raise rates, the, the pressure that cash managers are under to be more prudent is going to make that process far less effective in keeping money in the system. You know, that having having experienced a traumatic event over the weekend, every cash manager is now determined to never experience that again. So the money is going to move over the next days, weeks anyway, no matter what happens to rates in the banks. That 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 opportunity has been lost. Yeah, we saw the same when the Treasury froze those Russian assets. It's not a question of few we dodged a bullet. It's okay, now we have to have a plan for in case we encounter this problem ourselves in, in the case of central banks at that point. And now, as you say, there's really no option for cash managers. And you get the situation where you start looking at, okay, well, 
policymakers put in a, a very sound program, as you said, where they would pay par for certain types of collateral. And if you're a cash manager, you are going to say to yourself, well, we're going to buy a lot more of that type of collateral and we're going to sell or try and sell the collateral that they're not going to pay us par. So, you know, again, you realise this whack-a-mole market that we're in where every time you, you try and solve one problem, another one pops up. You know, this is what happens when markets aren't free. And as soon as you decide you're going to intervene in one way or another to avoid market forces taking their natural course, you do create these problems down the line. Again, what's the mindset of policymakers now in terms of, okay, you don't have time to sit back and go, phew, problem solved. They are now thinking as we're talking, okay, the natural consequences of what we did yesterday are this. And that is the next problem we're going to have to mitigate. How do we put the floor under the AAA mortgage market where, for example, things may start to get squirrely or or slightly less than uh, pristine collateral? How do they think about that, do you think? Um, I, well, I think the 2008 experience certainly changed the way they look at it. Um, and I think that they're trying to thread a, a needle of you know, systemic liquidity versus their you know, inflationary liquidity. And we'll we'll see that to me is again a, a narrative that the crowd will decide whether it agrees or disagrees with. But you know, there, there's no question, Grant, that the policymakers are in a really tough spot because you know they need the economy to slow down to give them a the cover to stop the hikes. Um, and and I, I honestly think that they may get some of that, that the, the, the decline in confidence that we've seen, you know, even before this, is beginning to have an impact. You know, new cars are unaffordable. So, you, you know, that's, that's going to create a problem. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't think the, the economic community realizes that when everything is payment based, the impact of market changes moves right into the economy in a nanosecond. There's no lag because my, my monthly payment on my car, on my house, on my credit card is immediately impacted by changes in rates. And, and, and so I think unknowingly, there's a lot of smothering that's going on in, in the consumer space, at least, because of the increase in rates. You, know, you, you look at you know, 15% of all new cars involve a payment of more than $1,000 a month. Well, that's, that's now making cars new cars unaffordable. So I, I think we're going to see already we're seeing it in housing, we're seeing it in autos, this suffocation of the consumer in terms of their monthly cash flows. And this is where the consumer is now having to choose between food, energy, Netflix, something we've subscriptionized everything and we've exhausted the, the capacity for the consumer to take on any more monthly expenses. So, so something there is going to have to give. Right. And as you point out, does it give quick enough? That's, I guess, the big problem here, because the longer the economy remains strong, the tougher it is. And, and now, obviously, the Fed have another decision to make with their upcoming meeting. 
And it was fascinating watching the debate yesterday about they're done hiking, you know, and most of the conversation, interestingly enough, that I read was around signaling. It wasn't about whether they need a 25 basis points or a 50 basis points hike to continue the work they've done. It was all the conversation, certainly in the financial world, was around what's the signal they need to send here. If we don't hike at all, we're sending one signal. If we only go 25, we go 50. So walk me through how you think about that, because I think that is probably correctly judged by the financial community as the most important component of the next announcement. Yeah, I, I don't know, Grant, what's likely to happen. I'm, I'm watching the T-bill space because I think that's the best proxy for what's going to come on the in terms of the, the Fed action. And, and there I think we're, you know, 50 is certainly off the table. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to see 25, but I but I think it'll be 25 with a lot of discussion around liquidity for the financial system if it needs it. So I think investors might give them the benefit of, of the doubt in terms of navigating those two together. And what does that mean, do you think? Because again, you know, we get to this point where Wall Street has been just waiting for, quote, unquote, the pivot. And the pivot for the last, I don't know how many months, has been all about the point where they either reach high enough rates to be able to pivot, or most likely, as people thought, they would be forced into cutting rates because they broke something. And it's interesting that the closure of these two banks feels exogenous. It doesn't feel like people are conflating the two and saying this was the thing that they broke. It feels like, oh, and there's a bank run. This is another problem they have to deal with. Do you think this is the breaking point? And if so, do you think the pivot does what Wall Street has absolutely with 100% confidence assumed it will do all along, which is jet fuel risk assets once more to new highs? Because I, I have my doubts about that now. Yeah, I you know I, I think we're at the tail end of a really long um, tug of war. That, that goes back almost a year now. You know, the, we had the, the June low last year, and we've had these really, you know, material ups and downs that have really gone nowhere. And and I think that you know people were making the assumption over the weekend that this is now going to break down. Today's action now leaves that back undecided. So. But what I know about tugs of war, these coils in the market, is that they don't resolve quietly. You know, think of this as a truly like a tug of war on a on a playground or something where the, the rope is still, but there's an enormous amount of energy expended on both sides to keep it there. So somebody is going to be really off sides. And and if I look at the positioning today, potentially the bond bears are going to be offside because the the, the positioning of treasury investors, you know, outside the banks is, yeah. is incredibly bearish. On the stock side, it until recent very recently was very bullish, you know, with the whole no landing sort of a dream scenario. And and we're now testing both of those. And I, I, I'm as curious as you are, because if if the inflationist 
scenario takes hold, yeah, you 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 run the risk of some sort of a hyperinflation, you know, turkey-like scenario where risk assets are where you want to put everything and we're off to the races. Um, the alternative is that you see some sort of classic recession where um, risk assets are the last place you want to be. You know, the, the, the thing that I keep reminding my clients is in the midst of this, your safest bet is things that have utility. Because we, we know that in either scenario, what matters to people in a crisis is going to matter to people in a crisis, whether it's inflationary or deflationary. Yeah, no, it's such a great point. You know, the other, I guess, component of this is the global nature of it. And it's been fascinating to me to see how little coverage like the European Central Bank have had in all this, right? I mean, this has been a US problem. And yes, while the clear and present danger was Silicon Valley and Signature, and that was the story, and the policymakers' response was the story, away from that, there is clear contagion possibilities on a global basis, not just through one banking system, but globally. What's the mood in Europe now, do you think? Is it kind of few, and no one's looking at us, but we need to do something, or is it just plain few? Or what do you think policymaker mood and customer mood is like in Europe right now? So I, I don't think it's few. I think it's... Good. <laughs> Thank God for I, that. I think everywhere I look, there is a highly localized problem that people are focused on. And it speaks to the problem of low confidence, which is... When I don't have confidence, my my frame of reference really shrinks. You know, you've you've heard me talk about me here now thinking. Yeah. But self-interest, close physical proximity, short-term time frames drive my you know what I'm doing, which means if I'm in Great Britain, I'm focusing on the problems in Great Britain. If I'm in France, I'm focused on the retirement issue and the problems that are there. If I'm in Turkey, I'm focused on my problems there. And you're, you're, in, you're in Australia. I suspect your you know, Australian policymakers are focused on the problems in Australia. We've, we've stopped looking at things on a global basis because our problems are right in front of us. And so that creates issues where global connections come at people out of the blue that surprises them. Not unlike what we saw with the supply chain problems with COVID, where everybody's focused on this this immediate disease problem and is ignoring the implications on a global basis in trade, in finance. And And I think we're in that same kind of a environment today. People, people have enough on their plate to worry about in their own lives. Why are they, why bother looking at the problems around us? Um, and, and so contagion could take hold and, and surprise people in lots of places at once. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you talk about mood. I mean, the fact that everything, everywhere, all at once scooped the Oscars last night. I mean, <laughs> if that isn't the title of a future piece for one or both of us, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, it it seems like it could either be a very good thing that people are locally focused or potentially a very bad thing. Because when you talk about that mood and we talk about low confidence and uncertainty and shocks, if you are paying attention locally, 
and something comes out of left field that was completely outside your purview. And the more you say we get to this me here now and pull inwards, naturally the, the, one of the big consequences of that is there's so much more that is removed from our peripheral vision and there are so many more potential shocks that can come at us. And that feels like the most likely outcome for me is that people will perhaps get comfortable locally much easier but leave themselves open to many more exogenous shocks that could kind of upset that that fragile confidence. Yes, yes. And, and particularly today, we have, you know, very synchronous low confidence around the globe. You know, the only place right now that I see really high confidence is in, in the Middle East, you know, where you've got, you know, record profits at Saudi Aramco and things like that. But, you know, you, you get outside of there, and you know, global confidence is, is not good in, in most places. But it's interesting because, and you made this point in your fantastic piece yesterday about Saudi Arabia in particular, uh, and I wanted you to, to talk about that if you could, because as you say, that is a region that, you know, off the back of the World Cup and, um, you know, Neom and all these, all these big things that are happening out there, there is a sense of confidence. But you highlighted as to why there's a potential shock coming. So I, I don't want to steal your thunder, so I'd rather you talk about that than me, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so several years ago, again, in, in this build-up to you know, the, the peak in 2021, I, I wrote a lot about what I was calling Silicon Arabia, about the interconnection in capital flows between Silicon Valley and the, the, the kingdom and the, the private investment funds. And, and this is not unique to, to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You, you can substitute the UAE, you can substitute in Oman. You know, there, there are, it's, a, it's a broader broader phenomenon. But you know, whether it was through you know, Masasan and SoftBank or these other intermediaries, what I was seeing was just massive capital flows into abstraction. And you could see it in direct form with things like Lucid, but but there's far more that has been indirectly placed into the system. And so we tend to think of the, the kingdom and the Middle Eastern environments as being isolated, as being independent of what happens elsewhere. But in a highly financialized global economy, they're, they're woven into the web um, it has been incredibly beneficial to them so far. But if this is the beginning of a, of a broader downturn in, in risk, um, the consequences of, of venture capital and private capital and, and the, the private equity, if those start to face similar skids, the consequences are going to go into governments and countries well beyond what people are paying attention to. And this is to your point about blind spots. We're, we're not looking at the interconnections. You, know, you probably read something for me today about El Salvador. You know, it's hard to imagine that that El Salvador makes this makes it through this if confidence continues to fall and therefore impacting crypto again in a, in a negative way. Just talk about that El Salvador piece, because again, you know, it's this kind of second order thinking that you do so well. And, you know, I've been so keen to highlight over the years because I just think it's such a skill and it's something that people can learn. You know, it's something that people can 
understand how to do. And I think there's El Salvador piece was, was the perfect example of, of how to do that. So just run us through that, if you wouldn't mind, so people can get a sense of, of how you kind of connect those dots and how you think about it. Yeah, so this this goes back to my my LIFO point before that you know these these bubbles unwind on a on a LIFO basis. And so what I tend to do is once I once I sense we're at the, the peak of it, I then sort of go back and look at everything that I've been writing about for the prior year or two and what names come up. Because if if they were popular on the way up, they're going to be vastly unpopular on the way down. And that deals with individuals, that deals with you know, countries, companies. You know, you, you can see an incredible change in tenor, for example, with, with somebody like Elon Musk, who could do no wrong in early 2021, man of the year, you know, on SNL and what's happened since. And that's that's a classic icon behavior where those we adore and celebrate on the way up, we revile you know, on the way down. And El Salvador was is one of those that was late to the party, played big and bold and was celebrated. And unfortunately, if confidence goes out, they will be taken out in the tide as well. It's not a personal or a, you know, I have no axe in this. It's it's just this is what the cycles of history suggest that if you were celebrated on the way up, you, you there is a there is a reckoning to come on the way down. But I think with you know, with, with going back to your point about abstraction and kind of sticking with the crypto-related stuff for the time being, because of that abstraction, it feels as though there's the option of not just doubling down is, if not absent, it's a very tricky one because in many people's minds, there's no there there. So how do you do anything but double down? And is doubling down at a point of low confidence is that a sensible strategy? I mean, it doesn't feel like one to me, but if you're forced into it, and, and what happens when you're forced to double down at a period of low confidence? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, abstraction is crypto's greatest threat. Has always, to me, has always been its greatest threat. Because when confidence is low, we we like things that are concrete, that are tangible, that are real. You know, we, can, we can agree or disagree about gold, but but there's a, there's a perceived tangibility that makes it a appealing you know that's why we hoard water and canned goods and all of that stuff because there there's something there that we know is certain and and crypto is is not certain um at least i think for the for the crowd more broadly and i think with confidence as low as is 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 it will be very difficult to convince people of that so the the question in my mind is what does the crowd choose as its go-to safe haven. Right now, we have everybody flying into T-bills and short-dated you know, money market instruments. That, that could be it. You know, I'm, I'm always reminded that you know, in prison, having ramen noodles is the, you know, the, the key to success. I, I don't know what, you know, what the, the, the thing is that the crowd will, will settle on in a panic but it will eventually pick something that is the the safe haven icon, the 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 life jacket that everybody feels like it wants. Gold played that part in 2011, and I think people have forgotten that it's it already was cast in that role. 
So I, I don't, I'm not convinced that we'll see it come back and do that a second time. So as you kind of sit here immediately after the, the Monday, after the Sunday before, and you look at what's happened and you look at mood and you look at how it's changed in both directions over the last, you know, what, 72 hours or so, you know, confidence and mood are both being whipsawed in both directions. Um, they're naturally moving in one direction and being cajoled back in the other direction. Is one force more powerful than the other? Is the default now for lower and lower confidence and all the effort is going to be, all the heavy lifting is going to be to try and drag it back in the other direction? Or is the natural optimism of most humans make that job slightly easier that we all want to believe that things are okay and once we're told they're okay, we feel much better about it? How do you see that mood landscape looking forwards from from today? So... I, what I what I see is you know, bank failures like this tend to mark major lows in confidence. You know, confidence has already fallen. That's why people are panicked to begin with. And so this is a, a climax event. The question is, is this the end? In which case, to your earlier scenario, yeah, you could see you know, the, the inflationary scenario come into place and we could see new all-time highs. That That is the bullish case. The bearish case is that this is merely the next cascade in a longer series of cascades of waterfall to come. Um, and so we should know that soon um, because these, these bounces, to the extent they come, tend to be um, sh- shallower and shorter. You know, if I if I roll through the banking crisis of two thousand and eight, you know, the the preferred crisis to Bear Stearns was six months. Fannie and Freddie was three months later. Wamu was a month and a half, and then Lehman. So that the time frame between these these climaxes just gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So if this is likely to be if it if this is the continuing you know unwinding of the everything bubble we'll be back and having this conversation in the not too distant future so what does it take you think to because you know like everything else there are overlapping cycles in confidence you know there there are short-term cycles in confidence and mood and there are longer-term cycles in confidence and when you think about coming out of the depression, there was a very long-term pervading mood around the world that may have had short-term euphoria, but the general feeling, and, and you, can, you can see it in the behavior of the generation that survived that, you know, for the rest of their lives, they were never in debt. They, you know, they hoarded things. They would never, you know, they would scrape everything out of a jar of jam or whatever before they threw it away. Gradually over time, that changes. What has it taken this point, you think? Because we've, we've had a, almost on a mood basis, it's been a buy-the-dip mood. And so uh, through that time, this buy-the-dip mentality, it's been pretty easy to get people back on the horse again. Do you sense that the overall cycle is starting to change? As you say, we've had three major crises in short, a relatively short period of time. Do you sense a shift in the overall mood that the path of least resistance is more somber, more depressive, uh, and that kind of manic side of us is being tempered? Or are we not quite there yet? Because if, if we get to that point, then it, it kind of changes the whole dynamic of the way we think about these things. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think we've reached a, a hope is lost point yet. But 
we're we're vulnerable to that. And and here I think we need to add one more dimension, which is there are five natural responses to, to lows in confidence. Fight, flight, freeze, follow, and fuck it. And that last one, I think, is important because we've seen nihilistic behavior on the part of many investors where they have gambled to the upside. There is nothing to, to say they will not gamble to the downside. You know, a, a put as a call as a call. You know, there, there's these these are these are gambling instruments, not strategic investments. The the goal is to make as much money as I possibly can in the shortest period of time. And so, if we see this swing grant from you know buy the dip to sell the rip. Then you then again, we have to prepare ourselves for an environment where everyone has the ability not just to move money, but to position money on a on a bearish basis. And again, I don't think we've we've thought through what that means when everybody has a you know the, the means to do that on their phone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so before we finish, Peter, just give us a sense of what people should be looking for in terms of headlines, in terms of behavior, both from markets and from policymakers, to sense where we are as we kind of take the next steps. I mean, I'm sure there's more ripples to come this week, but what are you looking for in terms of mood shifts of headlines and behavior, that kind of thing? Yeah, so what I'm looking for is indications where the crowd feels more or less vulnerable. Vulnerability is the opposite of confidence. And so do people feel more powerless or do they feel a greater sense of control? Do they feel certain or uncertain? And we'll see this in headlines. I think this morning was a great example of, of a panicked move in everything, uh, which would suggest a lot of hopelessness. And the, the question now is, do we begin a, some sort of a slow recovery? You know, traumatic events are not things that we recover from quickly. And so we need to realize that we're still, that the worst of it may have passed in the short term, but we're still on very um, uneven ground here. And so I'm, I'm looking for headlines that um, you're seeing people more optimistic in terms of investing, um, committing to things on a on a longer term basis. Um, you know, one of my best proxies for for mood, as you know, is um, the cruise lines. So they 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 tend to be a really good measure of mood because any sort of planning, you know, particularly of an expensive trip, gives us a sense as to whether we're moving away from that me here now mindset. Well, look, Peter, it's been a fascinating conversation. I really, really appreciate you doing this on such short notice and giving people a chance to listen to a slightly different, hopefully, discussion to the ones that they're being bombarded with every 10 minutes over the last couple of days, as far as I can work out. But look, for, for the people that are new to you, having heard you on this podcast, can you just let them know how to find more about you on Twitter and Financial Insights? Because as I say, I've been banging this drum for a long time now. I, you know, I think what you do is is so important and so unique 
And so the more people that can understand what you do and, and follow what you do, the better for everybody, I think. Sure. So they, they can follow me on Twitter. I'm Peter underscore Atwater at, on Twitter. Uh, they can find me at peteratwater.com. And then I have a, a separate website for financial insights um, with insights spelled I-N-S-Y-G-H-T-S. Put the Y in there. It's only a matter of time before you take out the S at the end and make it a Z. Insights. Yeah, there we go. There we go. A bit more zeitgeisty. Peter, again, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, my friend. It's it's always a joy to see you. And um, and this conversation was all I hoped it would be and so much more. So thank you again. No, happy to help, Grant. Thanks. Well, there you go, folks. Peter Atwater is uh, just a phenomenal guy. He's a great person, but he's a fantastic resource when it comes to looking at things that you won't find in mainstream coverage and that really will help you understand things that you kind of need to understand in order to make sense of a lot of what's happening and, and to try and get ahead of it. You know, between Peter and uh, Ben Hunt's uh, focus on narrative, I think both of these, mood and confidence on Peter's front and narrative on Ben's front, are really, really important tools to have when you're trying to figure out really the one question that matters, what the hell's going to happen next? You know, picking through the wreckage of what happened yesterday is one thing, but trying to get a step ahead of it. And as, as Peter pointed out so beautifully there, the, the mood of the crowd is such an important factor in dictating what does happen next. If you can if you can understand the mood of the crowd, it really does help you figure out which way it's going to turn and, and, and that turn will necessarily take asset prices with it. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you want to listen to more conversations like it, you can go over to the website, grant-williams.com and find out about uh, the other podcasts that we do as well as things that make you go home and my video series about time. It's been an awful lot of fun talking to Peter. I'll be back again with another podcast soon. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.